often hyper-aware of the difference between the generations today. Yeah, Gen Z awoke, baby boomers had it easy. But what if we just turned that on its head and look at what unites us instead of what divides us? We all come of age with the worldview specific to our time and place. I get that. But there's also so much richness to be found in connecting with each other and finding some common ground, searching out the experiences and values we share despite the age difference, gender, race and social class. Many of us, my most interesting and inspiring moments come when I'm sitting around a table with people of all ages. I love the wisdom and experience of older generations, the positivity and openness of younger people. And one of the things that fascinates me about Gen Z in particular is how much access they have to new ways of thinking. And we know social media drives a lot of this and it also has its darker side. But this is a place where people gather, discuss, debate and protest today. Calling for change is no longer just about the street marches and banners. Today it happens just as much, well perhaps more, on Instagram, Twitter, on the slogans we display on our T-shirts and, of course, those tote bags. My guest today is part of this new generation using social media to talk about what matters to them and the change they believe we can create. Florence Given has been called the voice of Gen Z. She's an artist, an illustrator, whose entrepreneurial spirit first revealed itself aged 10 when she won a competition to some Beyonce tickets and she promptly sold them on eBay so she could buy her first laptop. She made her name on Instagram as an art student with her illustrations that featured slogans ranging from a bitch is a woman with boundaries to I am the love of my own life. And they adorn walls, clothing and bags. Oh, she's also written two books and hosts a podcast. And yes, she's only 23. Today, 23-year-old Florence has 600,000 followers on Instagram and she's loved for outspokenness on everything from feminism and sex to her sexuality and how young women and men navigate relationships today. She once said, people often want young feminists to earn their stripes before they talk about things. But you don't have to have read the theory to know you deserve better. So while it might feel right now as if the gap between generations is yawning even wider, I'm not sure it is. Young women today face many of the same issues that women like me have also experienced. And it's key that we all seek to understand the voice and perspective of others, because this is how we will come together, instead of being divided. This is Beautiful Misfits, and I'm Mary Portis. Welcome, Florence Given. That was such a gorgeous intro, I'm internally blushing. <laughs> <laughs> I want to start how you grew up and how this all came about, because... Activism often starts in drips following experiences that, you know, that shapes our views. So take me back to how you grew up. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Plymouth and it's funny you say the word activism. I've always felt so allergic to the label activist because of the expectations and the connotations that activist has when all I've ever done is follow this fire inside of me. It's only later, I say later in life, I'm 23, but I've been doing this for about five to six years where I can pinpoint all of the moments and see that it did come from some rage, some incident that happened to me where I wanted to help other people go through something similar with my own wisdom that I'd accrued from going through those things. And for me, 
everything I've done, I think, comes from this desire for connection with women. When I lived in Plymouth, I went to an all-girls school. But before I went to the all-girls school, I was in primary or primary school. And, and where were you in the family? Tell me, do you have siblings? I have a younger brother. My parents are still together and they're very happy. My mum loves interiors. And my dad's a property developer, so he, he built houses and stuff. And, and did you feel safe? Did you feel this is lovely? I have a lovely middle class yes. upbringing. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Happy? Yeah, happy, but not with myself. But I think that was just... Hang um, on, hang on. When you say not with yourself, tell me that. I was extremely self-expressive and my mum never held me back from anything that I wanted to do. My mum would be going shopping in the local mall in Plymouth at like Zara or something and I'd be running around in a little tutu break dancing with my friends. And she never was like... Oh, stop, you're embarrassing me. She never reined in my self-expression. And I think that it's something I've, I've been able to keep continuously throughout my life is that childlike sense of expression and play with my artwork, with my opinions even. And then I went to secondary school and I feel like that's where it kind of got bashed out of me because I wanted to fit in with the other girls in school. And it wasn't until I was isolated from my friendship group of women because I started to get good grades in school. I'd previously been a little shit, sat at the back of class, not really paying attention. I had an intervention with my parents and my teachers and they said Floss is bright she's dimming herself because she wants to be friends with the girls in school and then I ended up sitting at the front of school a rumor was spread around school about me to do with my eating disorder and it completely isolated me and I chose to not grovel back like I had done before and I chose to kind of stick with it and stay at the front of class pay attention and I developed anxiety disorder I was going into school with heart palpitations and I just started googling all of this stuff like what's going on with my body? What does this mean? And it said, you probably have anxiety. And then I bought a book in WH Smith on mindfulness. And I was, must've been 15 at this age, read this book on mindfulness, took it outside of school. And it said to do one thing that scares you a little bit. And that for me was to be seen on my own. And so I went to the local park in Plymouth where all the girls from my school would go. And I laid in the middle of this field. It was so humiliating to me, but I love the sun. The sun makes me so happy. It's one of the biggest sources of joy in my life. And I, all I wanted to do was just lay in the middle of this field. And so I laid in the middle of this field and I got through the embarrassment of people even looking at me. I'm listening to you and I'm looking at you and, you know, you're a very beautiful, very cool girl. And... We're going to start to talk about the patriarchy, but actually what you were up against then was this female energy mm. that was making you feel alienated. Yeah, yeah. But that female energy and their conformity that you sometimes you didn't feel that you were fitting into was coming from a set of values that have been put forward by the patriarchy that have been created by the patriarchy. Yeah, it's weird because when I look back, I do, you know, I've, I did fit into the the patriarchal standard of beauty. That's the thing. You, you see, you see yes. supermodels today talking about it and it's a complete dysmorphia. It's a complete delusion. And I do think it is about control and we're rewarded for controlling our bodies. I think that maybe when I realised that there was something different was when I realised they were trying to stop me from realising it. Like, they were trying to stop me from realising that I was okay without them. And I think we see that with shitty boyfriends or friendship groups or, or businesses that know you're, you're a great asset to the team, but they're not treating you well. Like, you see this happen all the time where they, they don't want you to realise your worth. And that, that had happened, I think, in the group. It's just terribly painful to even listen to, isn't it? And how, you know, young women can treat other young women. I know you talked about the mechanisms that you then had of helping yourself, mm. of healing, I suppose, this pain. I love this thought of you going out and lying in the middle of the field. I read this beautiful Sharon Blackie who's written a book called If Women Rise Rooted. Have you read this? No, I haven't. It's brilliant. But she talks about 
how we are connected with the land, with the mm -hmm. earth, Mother Earth, you know, which is a visceral thing that women, you know, women, we were the ones who were the carers of the earth, you know, the found the water and it was where we came from and so much we've been moved away from. And she talks about her friend finishing her A-levels or GCSEs, I can't remember, and then going and lying in the grass and feeling just totally connected. Yeah. And actually that you thought, I know I might be laughed at, but actually that's where you felt rooted and, yeah. and, and safe. Yeah, I did feel safe. And it's the sun for me. The sun is what makes me really happy. Yes. And it was just something I wanted to do. And after it felt like I was breaking some kind of social contract with them, um, almost like this weird attachment and bond I had to them. I didn't know that's what I was doing at the time. It's only in hindsight that I can really see that that's what was happening because then it sent me on a path of journaling and writing every day and writing my feelings and realising that some people have insecurities and, and that's why they hurt other people. And I learned very quickly about that process that happens with people who are insecure and that has nothing to do with you. I've always been very sensitive to the feelings of other people, particularly women. It's been one of my greatest strengths and that has also been to my own detriment at times. And I think that every single thing I've been doing in my career, with my books, with my writing, with my podcast, anything is about bringing women together. I do these Instagram posts sometimes as well where I tell people to make friends and flirt in the comments because I just want them to have that connection. I think also when you kind of go into adulthood and you're in your early 20s and you've come out of university and you don't really have a workspace or you're freelance or the pandemic here or whatever, you're not really in a space where you're making friends with people and it can be embarrassing to admit that you're lonely. And I think that's what's always been so important to me is to bring people together and to show that it's not embarrassing. And you so you dealt with your anxiety, but this toll or this pain then moved from women, didn't it? Because you talk about when I was 14, I was chatting with a guy a couple of years older than me at a house party and after I gave him a kiss, he immediately put his hands down my skirt. Another time in a nightclub, the person responsible for the welfare and safety of the people in the club openly and loudly objectified me in front of a whole queue of lads waiting to get into the club. I was having a little gentle boogie while my friends smoked their cigarettes and all of a sudden I hear from the top of the stairs, Oi, tits. Mm-hmm. That was the catalyst for my illustrations. So I was drawing naked women at school. Then I went to art school and there was this project that we were doing where you had to include slogans with your work, whether it was T-shirts or your art project or something. And I just turned 18 and so I just started going on nights out. And that's actually from an article. It was one, I think it was from like some small newspaper or something. And they'd reached out to me to talk to me about my illustrations. And I had no idea what I was doing. I would never have ex shared so much explicit details, I don't think, about the details of that harassment. But I was so angry at the time. And so, sorry, the newspaper got in touch with you because they saw your drawing. Yes. And yeah. said, oh, we'd love to use it. I think these. it was like a local Plymouth newspaper. And well, it's your na naked women. The Plymouth local echo goes, come on. Yes, yeah, yeah. They'd seen my um, my illustrations online and stuff, and they were like, so what led you to do this? And I just oh, I spoke so candidly. Oh, this guy shouted tits down the stairs. So that was one of my first experiences, not my first experiences with uh, harassment. I think probably my first awakening, because I'd also, I'd been going to art school, and I'd been we'd been talking about politics and stuff more, and I was like, there's something so wrong with the way that men are treating me and my friends on nights out with our bodies and stuff when we go out. And I was the only person who was making that point so when I was going out and seeing my friends be groped or they would even feel like sad if they weren't getting any 
negative attention from men because it was perceived as desirable. And if no man is looking at you or even groping you, then what's wrong with me? And it was weird to see women feel invisible because of a lack of harassment. It was, mm, mm. and I was like, this is, wait, this is what happens because I just turned 18. All my friends are always older than me. And I couldn't believe that this, they were like, this is just the way it is, Floss. Like, this is the world. This is just men. We just have to. And then it's all this tag teams that text me when you get home safe. Uh, I'll, I'll escort you to the toilet. And it's all of these little rituals that women have on a night out that I was just starting to see as um, a bit strange. And I, I wanted to put it into my artwork. So I started to do that, put it into my artwork put it on Instagram. But what you just said about this, and it, it's extraordinary, and I always often think how little we realise that the freedom, the freedom that we could have is so suppressed. But I hope you get home safe, you know. Mm -hmm. And I have children, I have boys, and I have a girl. And I never had to worry about my son, how he would get home. I mean, I'd always make sure that I got the text from him. And, mm. You know, are you OK? You're with a gang of friends. But it wasn't, it was more that he might end up in a fight or a lads, but it wasn't anything to do with him. The threat that could happen to my daughter. We are still living in that society and it's insane. Mm. Insane. And what you're saying is that your friends just accept it. Yeah, like you said about the water and the fish. It's the we water and the different. fish. We don't know it, but we do know different. And what you're saying is now I'm going to be the voice for that. And here's the thing. It's actually, there's still a part of you and a part of me, even when you're putting that voice out there and you put labels to it, you go... Hang on, how's this going to go down? Do you mean with your message? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course yeah. you do. You still go, oh, you know, when I wrote my book, Work Like a Woman, my daughter was at Oxford and she's, she went, be careful, mama, they're going to come after you, you know, like work like a woman because I put, this is 10 years ago. Who was she afraid of coming after you? Was it All men, the men, or... the patriarchy. Not, and, so not women. Uh, well, also there's women who had lent into it. It was at the time when Sheryl Sandberg had written Lean In and she was at the top of her game. Every woman was like, that's what a businesswoman yeah. looks like. And it was effectively a female version of the patriarchy and that's what we had to lean mm -hmm. into. So I looked at how could we do this a different way. Yeah. And when you start to realise this... There's a part of you that goes, if people, if women aren't angry, you want to just say, feel your pulse, because are you alive? It's in there somewhere, and I think it gets muted by distractions and everything. And it's, I think, I watched And this... also, France, the ability to say, I'm going to do this, and you young doing it, there's something really wonderful in that. What made you go, you're going to say you were watching something, sorry, do say it. I was going to talk about female rage I saw this video online and it was it was an all-female choir and they were just screaming and yelling mm, yes. and every single time I watch it I cry my eyes mm. out and it unleashes this mm. it's almost like a frequency that it just hits in my mind the sound of women screaming and shouting and it was this incredible choir I just love hearing women be loud like that yeah and the, here's the thing that we got to get to because we don't want to be these shouty feminism has so many different ways and it's how you get that message that mm. comes out from a place of anger, but that actually transmutes and transfers into something that is deep and actually has resonance and enough power that other women want to come and be part of it. Mm. And that the men who are part of the patriarchy think, I want to move into there too. 
that's not an easy task. No, it's it's not an easy task. And I think for me, it swung in this uh, extreme tandem. So I realised at 18 when I was going out, there were little stages of it that I'd been waking up slowly. Um, I stopped wearing a bra in school because I had really bad back pain. And I think it was psychosomatic stress induced. I used to have to lay on the floor in school and it, my bra was just killing me. So I stopped wearing my bra, not for feminist reasons. I just stopped wearing my bra. And then I noticed that all the girls would laugh at my boobs because you could see the nipple shape through the shirt and it was a bit gross to not wear a bra and you went to an all-girl school so that was like a whole thing of like why are you showing your boobs and I couldn't understand it and so I googled it why women's and I was like actually this doesn't happen to my brother and that was my first click was realizing he would never go through this I started to google it and then this whole plethora of information about sexual objectification of women's bodies came up so that was probably my first little what's going on here this doesn't feel right and then the stuff with the sexual harassment and so for me, it was building up for a while. So it swung in a big tandem for me because I then overcompensated for those 18 years of suppressing this voice, suppressing this intuition. This doesn't feel right, but then someone goes, no, that's just the way things are. And every time that someone shuts down their intuition, it just gets silenced and silenced and silenced, but it's still there. And then the voice just starts to get louder and louder. And I think for me, that was going to art school. It's being surrounded by more open-minded liberal people where it had my voice had more room for me to hear it. And then once it had slowly kind of wormed its way out, it was like a smack in the face when I was called, shouted, tits by the bouncer of the club and the queue full of men staring at me it was all of this stuff it's a massive build-up moment do you know what i was thinking just sitting here and listening to you because at the beginning when i kept on asking you why why you know you had a lovely middle-class family mm. you know you were cute you were quirky you were arty you were free <laughs> you know so why 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 actually probably even higher than all of that is that you probably felt that despite that mm. loveliness that you felt that the world wasn't in the shape where you're, you felt comfortable totally in your skin, that the skin that had been put upon you mm. was something that you didn't feel comfortable with. And that's an energy that can come from, we can all be in places of joy and fun, but you yeah. can still feel, I am not right in this, there's something not quite right with the world. It's something about your body being used against you when men objectify it. And what I mean by that is... If you're covering up, you're hiding yourself to protect yourself from men. But then if you get it out, you're blamed for the sexual assault that happens to you. Women are taught to be sexual objects and we're taught that sex sells and we're taught to sell our body, but then we're told to put it away. And we're taught that it's our biggest asset to achieving what we want, that prettiness can be a measure in which we can open doors for ourselves and then blamed you, that prettiness and attractiveness and our bodies are then used as the reason to justify when bad things happen to us at the hands of men. And it says things are always working against us or for us uh, instead of just being lived in. And I think that was where I felt at war with my body. It was being praised here, blamed for here. And Objectified then you, there. And then you talk to your own family about it and my brother saying, but you were wearing a, a, a low plunge corset, like dress. What did you think was going to happen? And it's funny because I know the intention behind his statement and yet all it does is put the onus on me to no longer wear what I want. And it's so confusing and it's so frustrating that all I want to do was scream. And that's all I did. So when I was saying about it went on a tandem for me, I hated all men for a very short period of my late teens. I didn't want to talk to my dad. He's the wisest, most wonderful man. And I take his advice all the time now, FaceTime every week, business advice, whatever. He's an incredible, generous, wise, lovely man. 
And I completely discarded anything he had to say because it was my approach and he let me have all of that angst. My family let me have all of that angst. They didn't understand it at first. But I went through this period of probably being very hard to talk to because all I was thinking about was the divide between men and women. It was like... You don't know about this. You don't know about that. And it was just like uh, overcompensating. Yeah, it was it was overcompensating. I think. And then what happened is you go this way, and then you kind of go back in the middle, and then you have your own critical thinking. Because also, it's not always it's not always black and white. It's not always men are bad, women are right in femme. It's just not it's not like that. The world doesn't work like that. So where is it? Let's get to where it is. So first of all, you leave and you go to school and you go to Plymouth Art College, then London College of Fashion. And change was clearly good because, you know, it led you to a new community. So you start Mm. to feel that you're coming out of this space. I'm I'm guessing. I I don't know exactly (laughs) the timescale of it. And then you wrote your first book, Women Don't Owe You Pretty. If I listened to every person who told me I've taken my feminism too far or believed every person who told me not everything's about race, gender, sexuality, I'd be stuck in my old ways of ignorance and stagnancy, which is exactly the type of person the racist patriarchy relies on to keep these systems of oppression alive and thriving. Don't leave conversations about politics to grown-ups. That's what grown-ups want. So you write your book. Mm-hmm. And then is this when you came out or when you then fell in love with women? Did you feel that that maybe was part of your anguish and anger? Tell me how that Potentially, happened. not in a conscious way. Mm. I think even me drawing naked women in school was like my queerness raging inside of me wanting to come out in some other way. I'd always been drawing and it came out in my art. I think that I'd always known I'd liked women, but it was something that was very much in the subconscious part of my brain. So I remember being three years, three, five, something. I just, I couldn't, I was like looking up at my mum. I just have this vision in Asda, uh, crying to her saying, mum, I don't want to be a lesbian. And she was like, why? I was like, because I have feeling things and I'm bisexual, but... I just remember crying to her because I was having these feelings about women and I was looking at women in movies and having these bodily feelings and masturbating over them from a young age as well. And I didn't know that it felt so shameful. I used to apologise to God after doing it. I wasn't even religious. I just knew I wanted to apologise to some man in the sky that, sorry for doing this. And it was this confessional thing that having feelings for women, it was so confusing because there was also no guidebook to it. I wanted to be romantically involved with them and then as I got older having these sexual desires for women but then I also wanted to care for them and nurture them and I hadn't seen any examples of that with men. Like I wanted to do the girly sleepover stuff and braid her her hair and then also have sex with her and those feelings were really confusing for me because also I'm very feminine and I hadn't seen many feminine queer women and there was this homophobic idea I had about gay women. I was like, that can't be me because I don't have short back and sides haircut and wear baggy jeans. So it was this idea that I'd completely shut myself off from and my love for women has driven absolutely everything I do in my work for sure but I didn't come out when I wrote my book it was kind of a a half out the closet half in moment on my Instagram where I had done this very vague Instagram post like everyone's somewhere on the spectrum happy pride and I was about 18 years old and I just did this thing in rainbow colors and everything something like that and someone was like yeah you know somewhere on the spectrum means like autism and I was like oh I had no idea so I had to like change it and make it a pride post but yeah it was like a half coming out moment and no one said anything about it it was like I was taking these little incremental steps Yes, and heterosexual people don't have to do any of that. No, I have to come out every day because I'm yeah, of quite course. feminine. I know, some of my experiences have just been insane, you know. And um, they just don't have to explain themselves. I remember so vividly we were 
was thinking about this the other day when I was, I was reading your book and thinking about some of the questions. And I remember when I fell in love with my wife, my ex-wife, and I had a meeting with this chief exec of a big luxury house. I used to come and have to see him every month. He was one of my clients. And um, as I came in this day, the marketing director came down and said, Look, I have to tell you, one, the press have told him that you're now with a woman. And um, I was like, oh, God, you know. And I knew that how he would have perceived me was very different. Yeah. And I remember walking into that office and sitting with him and that whole schmoozy energy that he had when he thought I was a heterosexual woman went right out the window. Wow. And I also just didn't know how to be me. It was a really horrible... After he found out. Yes, that, yeah. that morning I was like, oh, God, I remember. I, and I thought, how do I even work this? Because I must have equally been working as, you know, my relationship with him, my, you know, would have been a heterosexual one with a heterosexual man. And, of course, there would have been a frequency that was up. Yes, the there frequency, was. yes. Which was put on because there was absolutely no bloody frequency. I said, God, yes. I don't want to do those anymore. I don't want to play this shitty role. But it was very different. And I remember just feeling deeply uncomfortable, and I think he did. He didn't know what to say, and, you know. And so... That's not even that long ago. But I think what I found interesting that so much more today is that younger people are much quicker to identify as queer. And I see there's a momentum of support. It's brilliant. I mean, so brilliant. I mean, I know you're only 23 and I'm, it's just you still have that feeling, gosh, I have to go out there and explain mm. myself, which is yeah. pretty shit. But I wonder, does the label feel good for you? I suppose you used it as a way to mark yourself outside the patriarchal system. And to say this is me, but, you know, is it a label that you want? No, because I'm still figuring my sexuality out. So the label isn't for me, it's for other people. What do you mean you're still figuring it out? My understanding of my sexuality is still changing all the time. I don't know how much of my attraction to men is something that is genuine and how much of it is something that I think was learned and if I actually like men. And then I'm constantly being reminded that I am attracted. It's like it's like a daily thing in my head where I'm not sure about my attraction to men and where I stand with that. So that that's what I mean when I say it's still a journey and it's still something private that I'm going through. And then when you are someone who's publicly queer, bisexual, gay, lesbian, you are heralded as this, like, please speak for Oh, God, this I had thing. it straight away. Yeah, oh, my yeah, God, like, like, like straight Queer away. icon, bisexual icon, mm. uh, whatever it is. And it's this, um, you ask any queer person, and the gender stuff comes along. Actually, how, how am I dressing? I've been dressing this way for so long. I, my hair was down. If I wore a blazer, it would be sticking out the back. It was that long and blonde. My mum loved my hair, and it, it was never cut your hair, never cut your hair, your hair's so gorgeous. And it was so feminine, I didn't feel like floss I felt like it's weird I'm definitely I'm definitely not trans but I've never felt like a woman in the way that women have been pitched to me throughout my life and I think maybe that was perhaps just because I was queer and I didn't know it and I was like oh but the way that women are being spoken about the way I hear women talk about boys is different to how I feel about them in, in my way and even even as a bisexual person your relationship with men is different and I felt that this uh, even just cutting my hair was so liberating for me. But I think there's also a level of this and let's talk about it and I was trying to find this before you came in and I don't know I was telling you that Anne Hathaway did this incredible speech about the sort of hierarchy of sexuality mm. you know we all know what will be number one it'll be a white male uh, heterosexual but you know 
I remember, you know, it was always uh, women liked having a gay best friend. Yes. You know, oh, my hairdresser is amazing. Gay man. Gay man. Yes. Yeah, you're not women. Not no. women. You know, they were seen as joyous. But I never heard anyone saying, oh, my God, you'd love my lesbian friend. No. You know, she's fabulous. You mean, you mean no one would say that to straight women? To straight women, yes. Lesbian was not seen as that cool and sexy. And I'm Mm. wondering, and I might be wrong on this, I'm wondering, because of what you said, I, I, you know, I, I didn't see myself as wanting to have short back and size, but I also equally didn't want to have my hair down my no. back. I just wanted to be me. me. <laughs> right? And I'm just wondering whether all this kind of queer titling and sometimes young women choosing to have a different expression of queerdom than saying, I'm a lesbian, mm. because it's still not seen as the sexy part. Wow, you think queer women say queer instead of lesbian? Yes. Because lesbian still isn't seen as sexy. Because lesbians, you'll still think it's someone in heavy boots and short hair who's not yeah. who's not sexy. Lesbian's a dirty word in yes. the eyes of a lot of people. Yes. Yes. You write different women experience different levels of expectations from society to perform femininity. Marginalised women such as trans women, fat women and women of colour don't always have the privilege to reject beauty standards such as growing out armpit hair or even wearing the natural hair that grows on their head because of our racist and fat phobic beauty standards which subconsciously enforce our preferences when dating, hiring people, choosing friends... Performing femininity and desirability isn't always a choice for marginalised women. It's often an act of survival. Very true. This was something I learned. Very true. This was something I like also a, a hard, uncomfortable lesson for me to learn was I was going on Instagram posting pictures with my armpit hair and not as anything radical, just as this is how I feel now, like I want to grow out my body hair. And then without me saying, without me saying everyone do this, if, if you're a public figure or an influencer, people automatically take that as almost like some kind of billboard campaign for you need to do this too so even though I was just doing it myself multiple women of colour had messaged me saying I think what you do is amazing and also I hope you're aware that this kind of thing isn't available for everyone to just do because they don't exist in a body that looks like yours it's weird it's like one thing cancels it out and it was weird to view beauty as some kind of game like that where if you're white you can do the body hair if you're a black or a brown woman you can't do the body hair because you're bullied for it in school by girls that look like me and so all of this stuff it was like wow I'm so embarrassed I hadn't even thought of that before and I wasn't going to write a book called women don't know you pretty and not acknowledge that because I'm slim I can get away with doing a lot of more stuff with my body. Like even if I wanted to wear masculine clothes, it's still I'm still slim and white uh, as opposed to someone else in the outfit. And it was also how do I have this conversation without sounding so fucking patronizing? So yeah, that chapter in my book was necessary and I needed to talk about it because I learned a lot about the ways that I'm oppressed by men and it was important for me to learn a lot of the ways that I also benefit from so many structures in society. I think the thing is, it's a massive big learning curve. And what you're saying is, I'm learning as I'm going, I'm learning as I'm going. And you can always go back out again and retract and build. None of us have the answers. I'm Mm -hmm. a lot older than you, as you know, and I still don't have the answers. But here's the thing. And even when you said at the beginning, I'm not sure I want to be called an activist. Somehow it is activism. And it should be in a way. And, 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 you know, there are times where we, you know, ideally, Florence, we're going to be 
sitting in a world, I don't know how long from now, when none of us have to have labels, none of us have to explain ourselves. Mm. And it's, you know, I remember my wife saying to me once that she just, you know, she's very, very beautiful, very slim, and she would walk through the office and people would introduce her and say, she's a lesbian, you know. Because she was, she was gay, but she would be like, they were like, you're shocked at that, aren't you? Because she's just like really femme and she's got high heels on (laughs) and she's in fashion. And she said it used to equally annoy her. Mm. It's like, oh, look. But you didn't guess she was or that the guys would be after and the the friend. And there's just... When are we ever going to get to this stage? God knows, because when we have to just not put anything to this, Mm. that's the goal. The other goal that's deeply important in order to do that is to rise up the feminine power. And we need to not just eradicate the patriarchy, we need to just balance this out because it's Mm. a massive imbalance in the world today. I've always wanted to work... I think it kind of got lost along the way in my rage in what I was doing with my work. But I found a video of myself during the pandemic from when I was 17 years old in my bedroom doing my illustrations for the first time. It was just me talking to my webcam on my laptop. But it was like this monologue of pouring out feelings of, I just want women to feel safe. And I want to work with men to change that. And I was 17 and saying that. And I never would say now, oh, yes, I really want to work with men to change that. But I think that there's always been this part of me that wants to be the bridge between two really seemingly contrasting sides, like men and women. And it's like, it doesn't have to be that. Even with Women Don't Know You Pretty, I made the book pretty and pink to get the girlies who've never read books before to even read about the stuff. I think Or need, never read books on feminism. Never read books. Sure. On, well, well, so many people have told me they never read a book. No, of course. Because the book is sold in, in Tesco. So it was like reaching this whole other audience that saw the book, thought it looked pretty, and then they come out the other end of it saying no to sex with their husband. Oh, you should have done a deal with Esther. So I come out <laughs> in Esther between three and five. <laughs> you should be putting your book on the shelves. Um, so tell me about your first, you know, when did you first meet a woman and fall in love with a woman then? I think I fell in love with multiple female friends growing up and that was probably my first experience. I don't know if I could say fallen in love. I think it was this confusing feeling for me where it was my, I had intense female friendships and then nothing would be said. I wouldn't even think of it as sexual. It was very confusing. A lot of stuff would happen at sleepovers and then we wouldn't talk about it. And then it was just this confusing thing, all practice for boys. And none of it was ever really spoken about. So definitely had a lot of really intense crushes on my female friends. And then I became single after a relationship with a man when I was 19. And I'd also just come out of an abusive relationship. So that pattern doesn't go anywhere just because it's women and you end up taking all Mm. of that stuff with you where I was very strong with my work ethic and my speaking and my artwork and I was passionate and confident about that when it came to relationships I gave people the benefit of the doubt I've always wanted to see the good in people and I think that's such a beautiful quality to have and it also just works against you in every way possible well it doesn't though I was listening to Jude Kelly and she said I always believe in giving people the benefit of the doubt because Mm. that's a beautiful place to be and here's the thing Florence most people are good but most people are in a place of fear and so therefore they try and conform and I think what you're doing is opening up the world and saying listen let's just even talk about this stuff and that that has to be the goal but I do get back to the fact that when you talk about you wanted to do the bridge between men and women and see if we could work this together I think The way to do this for hundreds of years, and particularly the last 30, 40 years that certainly I've been around, we've tried to 
go into the patriarchy and fit into it. Mm-hmm. We've not shown another way, and I don't think we've shown women another way. And I think where the hope is, is with your generation, absolutely to say there is another way. And that way is built on all the things that you talk about, vulnerability, truth, mm-hmm. love, It's rejection. providing an alternative. And showing that that's the way out. I think it's showing them that it benefits them as well. It's like anything. You want to consume a piece of content, you want to read a book, it has to be enjoyable if you're going to talk about something that's quite uncomfortable, I feel, for yes, people. Yes, it has to be. Yours is two women. And if it feels uncomfortable to men, then they're not going to come into that space. No. Because there will always be... You know, it's like I say in the world, there's the people, you know, who care about our planet and want to make a difference, and there's mm. people who don't give a fuck and want yeah. to make a quick buck. Yeah. They're always going to be there. Yeah. I kind of think of what we've sometimes, people that we've got in government, I think of the Trumps of the world. I think that's always going to be there. And there's going to be the women that will be with them that are being like, gorgeous, <laughs> and I'm going to be with this man because he's got power. Yeah. We need to show a different feminine power. Mm. And then there'll be the men that go, I really love that world. Mm. For the first time ever, about a few months ago, I met this guy in the smoking area of a pub in London and he came up to me and he was staring at me and I thought it was it, it was making me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I thought I see him to make a move, whatever. And then he goes, sorry, I don't want to bother you. Are you Florence Given? I said, yes. And he said, oh, I've read your book. It changed my life and it led me to start a charity for women to get home safe. He was like, if women don't have any money, they can call this app. It's done really well. And he said, and I did it after reading your book because a friend told me to when I didn't know what to do after the Sarah Everard case. So he read my book and that's the first time I'd ever heard a man not just read my book because his girlfriend said to, but also do something tangible that helped other people. Florence, if there was one thing you could have given and that, you know, you went under a bus tomorrow, that's made a significant difference. You went under a bus? <laughs> well, you know, if you just you collapsed, any of us could. That's made a significant mm. difference in this world. That's what you want to hold on to. That was the first time where I'd felt like there was a bridge. And he's yeah. come over that bridge to your side. Yeah, Of course, there was the environment, and I think it takes... The people around you influence your life, and he had a woman in his life that was like, you might want to read this book if you don't know what to do about the Sarah Everard stuff. And I feel like a lot of men were wondering what to do. They want to do the right thing, but they can't. They felt like they can't put a foot wrong, and it was already confusing. And that was someone that took tangible action to do something. And I just I wrote it in my diary as like a moment for Beautiful. you to return to whenever Beautiful. I'm feeling like giving up or it's not worth it. And Tell the like... story time and time again. I remember I went and did the launch of my book, Work Like a Woman. I did the Edinburgh Festival, and it was this audience of, oh, God knows how many thousand. I was like, OK. And I looked at there's quite a few men. I thought, oh, here we go. Mm. You know. And I remember saying, listen, before you go, I can see all you men. This is not a lefty, liberal, lesbian rant. Bear with me a little. Anyway, at the end, yeah. of it, I was signing <laughs> the books, signing the books, and uh, this guy comes out, he's big, and he had five under one and five under the other. And he says, books. Yeah, books. <laughs> and he says, I run a big building company, Mary, and I'm going to give every one of my builders uh... this book to read. And I was like, that's the moment. Yes. That's the moment. And we don't have to be angry. We don't have to fight that. We need Mm. to build the new. Mm. And that new comes from your place of truth. And that new comes from a place of acceptance. Mm. And that new comes from a place of loving women and loving the feminine energy and what was deeply inside you that you felt you couldn't express from that little age. So whenever you're feeling, oh, just go back to that little kid who goes, I don't want to be a lesbian mama. Because actually what you're saying is, 
I don't want to be the feelings inside me. And actually, there shouldn't be any title to it. I just want to be me. Yeah. It was also, I think, knowing how lesbians were treated. If, yes. if, if that statement says anything, it's I don't want to be treated. I wanted to, these feelings were lovely. I was I was experiencing love, erotic like yes. feelings. Yes, uh, so it probably wasn't three years old, but, but, but something emotionally and it was wonderful. Lovely. So, yeah. so it was like I knew that the feelings were lovely and they were joy and they were warmth, but I knew what that meant about how I would be treated. We have to break this bigger narrative that we're all divided and fractured, and we need to come together. That's the thing here. On this collective power of women, how do you make this even bigger to get this message out there? So I've kind of moved off. I'm definitely still on social media and still using the platform. But there's something so reactive about it that I don't really like anymore. I don't really like how we're being encouraged to make everything so small, digestible. That's why I love podcasts. So I think for me, with scaling the impact of my message, it's continuing to do what I'm doing for the rest of my fucking life, writing books, creating and designing things. I want to go into designing one day. I want to make things that make people feel amazing. I want to... That there is what, like vibrators? Potentially. <laughs> potentially. I was actually thinking about clothes. Um, but it's got to be sustainable. Yes, of course. We don't need any more stuff. Yeah. You can do secondhand. You can do your own collection that's reworked. Because that's a great suit. Where's that from? I designed it. Did you? Yeah. It's really lovely. Thank you. I love check. Yeah, it's like an old sample. But there are so many things that I want to do and so many... I feel like I have a lot of hats. I want, I want to write. I like to talk. I like to design things. I love, One day I want to open a cafe that's not a queer cafe, but because I own it, you know, that's where all the queer people go. I want to create safe spaces. Not that there even really is such a thing because you can't protect everyone from everything. But I want to give people the feeling and the warmth that I get when I'm around the people I love and... I feel like I'm a good host for that kind of thing. And there's an analogy. Have you heard of the crabs in a bucket syndrome? Yeah, but tell me again, because I love it. If um, <laughs> crabs are caught at sea and they're caught in a bucket, they can collectively help each other out the bucket with their pincers. But the second one crab starts to get out the bucket, they all pull it down so they have a collective demise. And I think that there is something in that, whether it's a small community or marginalised group, you see it in the queer community, it's like, if I can't have it, you can't. Sorry, what do you mean, if I can't have it, you can't? If the queer I can't, community. if the queer community, women, whatever, it's like, if I feel like I can't have what you're having, I literally just published a podcast episode on it yesterday with a, this woman called ContraPoint. She speaks about how it's in niche communities it's the sense of if someone gains some kind of mainstream success or, or something does well, it's this feeling of, I don't think I can do that. And so I don't want you to have it either because that makes me feel insecure. And I feel like there's also this mistrust where if a woman in our community makes it, we don't think she's going to be there to open the door for us to come in also. And I think that something I want to do throughout my, I don't know how I'm going to do it throughout my career. I want to get to a place where I feel so steady and ready to open this enormous... I want to start a company. I want to create some kind of environment where people... Blimey, can... you're exhausting me. You've even got more energy than me. Well, that's what I know. But you can. <laughs> you can do it all. You can do it all. Here's the thing I was thinking while you were chatting there, you know. I remember when I went to school and I went to an all-girls convent school and I wanted to be like the other girls in the school who were wealthy, middle-class and, and quite normal. And I realise now that's the last thing I would ever want to be is yeah. normal. <laughs> whatever normal is. And when you talk about queer, and you even talk about the queer cafe where great people will come, 
there is a wonderful difference. There's a wonderful, which we talk about, misfittedness mm. that makes creativity, that sparks new ideas, that rubs even sometimes the painful moments, mm. but something beautiful comes out of it. So would you have it any other way? Absolutely not. No. I th one of my earliest illustrations was... Cheers to being a woman, it's fucking shit, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Cheers to being a queer woman or whatever label you put in front, whatever. It's a, you're a woman, but you're not a woman that's going to be in that pack at school that you felt alienated from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, even this is the thing, though. I was initially. Well, of course we all were. Yeah. We all tried that one. Blimey, yeah. we all tried that yeah. one. And then your superpower, your strength is your difference. Mm. Florence Gibbon, thank you for taking the time to thank spend you. with me this morning. Cheers. Thanks for listening, and I leave you with this. Don't you dare, having listened to this podcast and be inspired, think that the care of this world is always someone else's job. It's not. It's yours. Every one of your actions counts. Make it happen.